so week three, we've uh, covered a whole lot of territory between just Genesis and Exodus, you know, about 2,300 years Genesis, another 430 some odd years in Exodus. And now we're actually going to cover just a very, very narrow period of time. Um, this, all the events in Leviticus, there aren't many events. Most of it is uh, is instructions. Um, and so there's not much uh, that is added to the narrative of the children of Israel. Um, but when it takes place is within that two-year period from leaving um, Egypt and going in uh, to the wilderness um, before they uh, get to the edge of the promised land and they fail to go in that first time. So it's it's two years from leaving Egypt until they fail to go in the first time. So we're in that period where they are camped at Mount Sinai and Moses has uh, received the law from God on Mount Sinai. He fasted there for uh, 40 days, came down with the Ten Commandments, and at the bottom was when Aaron had made the uh, the golden cow and their uh, uh, worshiping an idol already and he breaks the Ten Commandments, goes back up for another 40 days of fasting, you know, pleading with God not to destroy the whole nation there. Um, but getting a little ahead of myself, so we'll just kind of jump jump through our big picture uh, questions. Um, so who, who's our writer? Um, most, most likely, it's, it's still Moses. Um, the narrative between the first five books, they all just, they flow right together. They're the same writing style. They um, where one picks up, the, the next starts. So at the end of Exodus, uh, it ends with the completion of the tabernacle. Tabernacle is just another word for tent. This tent that God told um, Moses to build a particular way. It had to have certain curtains of a certain length made out of certain materials uh, and to have certain uh, coverings and doors and bars to hold it up. And um, just anyway, it had that many, a whole pattern of how they're supposed to build. And inside you had you know, the table um, for showbread, um, which was to you know, be a memorial, um, not to be uh, eaten until, until later. And then you'd have the altar for burning incense and an altar for burning the meat. And so we just had this whole pattern. And the point being is that Exodus ends with all those things that have now been built. So he's been given the pattern, the blueprints for it, um, which can make Exodus kind of hard to read because you're like reading, you know, blueprints. Um, and then those are all completed and it's put together. So that's kind of where we pick up here in Leviticus in those few uh, chapters in here where it actually is narrative. But most of it is just more instruction, the how. How do you actually go about performing the service under the uh, Old Testament law that the, the Jews were, were subject to? Um, so who's the writer of Moses? Uh, who are your principal figures? Uh, there aren't many. Uh, you still got Moses, um, the, the prophet leader of Israel that God's raised up, his brother, Aaron, who is the high priest, and then Aaron has four sons, uh, Eleazar, who will later be the high priest, uh, and Ithamar, who's uh, a, a priest, um, and then Nadab and Abihu, who will both be consecrated as uh, priests within this book, um, but pretty much on their first week of the job, um, or very shortly after they start, they disobey God. They do something that doesn't follow the pattern that he gives of how they were to perform the sacrifices. And so they both wound up dying um, for their disobedience. So it was a very, very high standard that they're, they're being held to. Um, if you've ever you know, read Leviticus, it, it's a challenging book. It, it is, there's a lot of uh, very particular details about the how to do this stuff. And for 
or most of us being uh, Gentiles and have no you know, cultural exposure to this, it, it can be just kind of uh, overwhelming trying to, to work through it. And so my, my goal in all this is really just trying to pull out some, some, some big picture concepts. So hopefully the next time you read it, you'll, you've got uh, these kind of hang your hat on, what am I working on? And then maybe the details will, will help from there. So the theme is, is that God reveals his law to Moses. That's, that's, that's the best thing I could think, theme I could think of. If you think of a better one after you read it, uh, after this, you can send it to me. But I mean, this is, this is his, the way he wants it done. So God's telling Moses how to do it. Uh, we talked about when these events occurred. Um, you know, like I said, most of the book is in the form of instructions, um, but there are a few, uh, few events that contain narratives, and those all happen after the tabernacle has been put up, and it's as they, they start performing the work. So you're setting apart the priest for the first time to consecrate them. You're doing the first uh, sacrifices. That's what's going on right here, um, which, which, again, flows right with the narrative at the end of Exodus. Um, put a verse here in Leviticus uh, 27 and 34, which says, these are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel in Mount Sinai. So that's after you've read the whole thing, it's kind of summing it up. These are the commandments that God gave Moses. He didn't come up with these on his own. That's what received, he received, and you know, hence that's the, the theme. All right. So just jumping right in, what, what is significant going chapter by chapter? And I've tried to break these chapters into groups, kind of, kind of general topics. Um, so the first general topic that's really addressed in chapters one through six is the set of laws uh, governing the proper manner for performing all the various sacrifices. And these are these are very very specific. I mean, down to what animal is acceptable? Could it be a male or a female? You know, couldn't have any blemishes. Where were you supposed to sacrifice it? I mean, sometimes they were so specific that you had to sacrifice it on this particular direction on the north side of, of the altar. And so getting into that, you know, for us reading it now, it could be really overwhelming. And so what I tried to pull out is just kind of what are these various sacrifices? Um, and they've got a bunch of different names and how they're named that can can really re relate to three different categories. Um, it could refer to what is being offered. It can refer to how is it being offered or why is it being offered or purpose. Um, so if we start in chapter, fun, you sh chapter one, you have this whole conversation about uh, instructions for uh, doing a burnt offering. Well, Turns out a burnt offering is a general term for how the offering is to be uh, sacrificed. It was to be completely burned. So it's referring to the process of burning the, the sacrifice. It's not uh, necessarily affected by, by what is it, but it's, it's referring to the process of the burning. Um, so it's a sacrifice that's going to be a burnt entirely by the fire. And that's different from most of them because most of them is just taking a portion of the sacrifice um, and burning that portion, whereas this is the, the whole thing. And there's a process they had to do, go through to do that, to burn the whole thing, including, you know, washing portions of it. Um, and then the, and the the priests are commanded here in this chapter to make a continual burning 
uh, a continual burnt offering both morning and, e and evening. So when it talks about the, the morning and the evening uh, sacrifices, that's what it's referring to. It's referring to a, a burnt offering, and they had to do they had you know sacrifice they had to do every every day, every week, uh, every new month, and then several uh, annual sacrifices. And so the the one that was a, a daily occurrence was a it was a burnt offering. The next offering that you're introduced is, is described as a meat offering. And this would be uh, an example of a what offering. What is being offered? Well, something that's described as meat. Now, you and I, when we think meat, we think cow, we think steak. <laughs> um, and so in, in the King James Version, this, this is a little confusing. But if you read the description in that chapter of what is made up, what are the ingredients of a meat offering? Well, it's flour mixed with oil and, and frankincense. So it's it's... Uh, and I think other translations would describe it as a meal offering, like cornmeal. It's, it's like a grain. Uh, and in you know 1600s, when the King James Version was written, meat was could be substituted with the word food. It's a food offering, basically. But it, it's made up of flour, oil, and frankincense. So, so this is a description of what are you offering? It's a meat offering. And so a portion of it is going to be burned. Um, a little bit is going to be burned on the altar. And the rest is given to the priests, Aaron and his sons. They were to, to eat, and um, this was part of the portion, because remember the Levites, under the division of, uh, of the promised land, they won't, they won't receive any uh, land to grow vineyards and everything. They'll have you know, some cities where they can live, but um, the, the offerings um, that the, the Israelites would bring to the tabernacle, you know, a portion of those are going to be given to the priests and to the Levites. Um, next, in chapter three, you're introduced to a peace offering. This is one that would be described as a why offering. It is, it is the purpose behind it is what, what gives it its name. Um, this is uh, one of those offerings where you're not burning the whole animal, you're only burning the fat and the kidney. Um, and this can also be offered as a Thanksgiving offering, um, which is which is interesting that these terms are not mutually exclusive. Um, they can be there can be a overlap or a general term and used on, on on another as well. Chapter four introduces you to another why offering. It's a sin offering, uh, and when you and I think sin, generally we think of, you know, you, you've intentionally done something wrong. Well, that's not what's referring to here in the sin offering. The sin offering is what you would do to make up for sin in ignorance. You didn't know about a specific law. You broke it. When you found out that you broke it, then you would bring this particular offering and it would be um, you know, tendered to the priest and they do the offering as a sin offering. Um, to make up for for that sin that's committed in ignorance. Now there is a proportion in what had to be offered based on whether you're just you individually, or whether you're a ruler, or whether the whole congregation, the whole nation, had made a mistake as a whole. And, and you know, uh, as an individual, the value of the sacrifice, the animal that had to be sacrificed, it gets progressively larger. So if it's just you. You know, it's a smaller animal. It's not as expensive. If you're a ruler, um, it's more. And if it's for the congregation as whole, it's, it's a very big, expensive, expensive animal. Um, just like the, uh, the peace offering, you'd only burn the fat and the kidneys. Um, then you get into the trespass offering. This is another why offering. Um, why do you have to give a trespass offering? Because you sinned intentionally. So 
sin offering, unintentional, trespass offering, intentional. And again, there are various uh, acceptable sacrifices that were you were allowed to offer as a trespass offering, and they varied based on your ability to obtain them. So if you were poor, you didn't have to come up with the same you know, standard that someone was rich was. That you could there was there was a tier for it. Um, same same function of burning only the portion, the fat, and the kidneys, um, and then the remainder was to be uh, eaten by the priests. Uh, chapter six, you get additional instructions to Aaron and priest on how to perform the services, how to clean up, how to eat the various sacrifices. All this had to be done in a very specific way. I mean, this were um, you know, very detailed. You know, God's not the author of confusion, but of order. Well, he's given the exact orders that he wants. And later when we get down to chapter seven, we'll see just what, what the high standard was and what the consequences are of not meeting that standard. All right. And I, I know we're covering... Uh, a lot of material, so hopefully this is just to kind of whet your appetites as you go, you know, look at the text itself. Um, you get down to chapter seven, you get into some a couple of how offerings. Um, so we talked about a burn offering that refers to the offering being burnt, you know, entirely in the fire. Then you've got a wave offering. This is literally what that means: is the offering will be lifted up in the air by the priest and will be waved back and forth. <laughs> as opposed to a heave offering, which is an offering that will be tossed up in the air. Um, so that's, those are, that's the difference between a wave and a heave. It's, it's literally what it sounds like. It's referring to what the priest had to do in the process. Um, and then you're also introduced to a Thanksgiving offering, um, which is uh, you know, another purpose-driven. It's because you're giving thanks to God, and there was a... Um, a pattern that you had to follow of what would be made up of that. So Thanksgiving offering was like a package. You had unleavened bread or cakes, um, you know, unleavened cakes, unleavened bread, and a peace offering. I guess the unleavened cakes were the unleavened bread, excuse me, and a peace offering. So we talked about the peace offering before. Um, a portion of that peace offering would be a heave offering. <laughs> and then the rest of, is for the priest to be eaten that day. So you see how these terms overlap and they kind of build in together. And so we can't just look at them in isolation. Um, but this was, you know, a peace offering is actually a portion of the Thanksgiving offering. And then there's a few other, oh, and just a, a note in chapter seven, that's where your, your uh, eating of blood is uh, expressly forbidden. Uh, that particular one is carried over into the New Testament. So if you look at Acts, when they are telling the Gentiles to uh, abstain from fornication and from things strangled and from eating of blood, you know, that's a requirement that falls on the New Testament church today. Um, other uh, sacrificial ter sacrifice terms and definitions. Um, so there's the term uh, a free will offering. Uh, that goes to the purpose. Um, it is an offering that's made voluntarily. No one's forcing you to do it. Um, how that will be uh, handled as a portion will be burned, and then the priest is able to eat it um, not only that day, but the following day. And that's different from the Thanksgiving offering where the priest had to eat it the day of, um, and he, he would get in trouble, uh, for lack of a better word, if he would uh, eat these particular offerings beyond, let's, let's call it their expiration time. The Lord only allowed them to eat, you know, for so long. Um, so a free will offering, you had a longer range of it that day and the following day, whereas other ones were, were much narrower. So you've got your free will offering, the voluntary offering, 
And then you also have the concept of a drink offering, which is mentioned in chapter uh, 23. I think we pick up uh, more clarification of what that means uh, in Deuteronomy. Um, but a drink offering is literally uh, pouring out uh, wine um, under the Lord. Um, so that's a referring to a what. The drink offering is what are you offering? Um, and then you've also got the concept of burning incense. And back in Exodus in chapter 30, and I gave you the verses there, it tells specifically what that incense had to be made out of, the, the ingredients of it, how it had to be ground up. It describes you know, using the art of the apothecary. And I think of like a pistol and mortar where you've got the, the bowl and the stone where you're, you're grinding it into smooth powder. Um, and you can only use those ingredients. And then those that perfume was to be uh, burned um, both daily as part of the, the daily sacrifice and then also on the, the annual sacrifice on the Day of uh, Atonement when the, the high priest would go into the most holy place. That's significant. Um, of, you know, what is it? Because that's what Nadab and Abihu got in trouble for in chapter 10. Um, so you've got seven chapters. First seven chapters are all just instructions on what are these various offerings that can be made and then how specifically is the priest to handle that if, they're, if it's brought to them how does he need to do what exactly are the steps he's supposed to do to to comply with God's uh, rules on how to handle it, how to kill it, where to kill it, what gets burned, what gets carried out of the camp because um, it's unclean, what uh, can be eaten, how long can it be? Those are all, all questions that are being addressed there. You get to chapter eight and you get your first portion of the narrative. Uh, it picks up with Aaron and his sons, that should be plural, uh, they're consecrated, which means to be set apart or made holy. They're set apart as priests. So that's the process they go through there in chapter 8. And then chapter 9, you get Aaron's uh, first crack at, at working. He's offering a sin offering for himself and then later for the people. Uh, he does a good job. Um, he's not killed. In fact, the glory of the Lord appears um, so all the people can see. And, uh, and a fire appears from the Lord, and it consumes the offering that he's offering. So he, he did a good job, and the Lord, you know, you know put his stamp of approval on it. And throughout kind of Aaron's tenure as high priest, there will be people who are trying to uh, overthrow him, um, who question his legitimacy as the high priest and as uh, you know, a leader. Same thing with Moses. And so this is just one of your first examples of God, you know, giving you know, his explicit approval for, for Aaron's work. Contrast that with chapter 10, his sons, Nadab and Abihu, which it doesn't seem like much time has passed by by the time we get to this. And they decide that they're going to offer what's described as strange fire into the Lord or strange incense. They, they took something that wasn't part of the, the ingredients that were given there in Exodus. I, we don't know what it was. Uh, and they tried to offer it, and it displeased the Lord. And so he sent fire out, just like he'd consumed the offering that Aaron had done. He sent fire out and consumed them. Um, and so that was, a, that was a rough day for all involved. Um, and then also there in chapter 10, you get uh, an explicit uh, requirement or a prohibition on the drinking of wine within the tabernacle that the priests were to be uh, focused on their, their job alone and not, not partaking in that. So. Those are kind of your first two categories. Category one of you know the various sacrifices. Um, how do you go about doing it? Category two, talking about Aaron and his priest, Aaron and his sons becoming priests and their kind of first days on the job. And then the third category uh, is just 
various laws on cleanliness or cleanness and uncleanness. And these are these are you know the Lord's terms for what is clean and unclean, not the idea of what do we think is is is, is nice or foul. And so the, he had very specific uh, categories. In particular, on what they could eat, um, the animal that was clean they could eat, that was unclean they could not eat, um, and so that was important information for them. And the the general thing, if you look at the pattern between the the, the land animals and the fish and the birds that were classified as clean, what it looks like to me, the pattern is if the animal ate plants and it wasn't a carnivore or a scavenger, it was generally going to be in the clean category. And that makes sense. If you go think about a buzzard who's eating, you know, roadkill, I mean, he's got a lot of bacteria and, and, and uh, nastiness going on with them. And so the, the likelihood of getting sick from that animal would be much higher. And so the same thing with, you know, eating uh, uh, other animals that are carnivores that are, that, are, that are killing other animals. I mean, either way, just I'm looking at the pattern for, for what he said. I mean, you can see all the individual, but he's very specific about the, the animals and, and what characteristics they had to have to, to be considered clean. And so your carnivores and your scavengers, you know, were uh, excluded from, from those lists. Um, so continuing this theme of clean, cleanliness versus uncleanliness, they describe in chapter 12 uh, the period of time in which a, a woman had to have a separation and purification um, and then the offering she had to make after she gave birth and it was different whether she had a boy or a girl it was a longer period i believe for a boy uh, no maybe it was a girl i don't check me out on that it was a different period but how this comes into play is if you are reading in luke uh, chapter 2 and in verse 22 it talks about uh jesus uh jesus's birth and mary and so there's a reference to after her period of separation and so that's a defined window so Luke doesn't tell you how many days that is, but if you go look here in, in uh, Leviticus chapter 12, you can see, all right, for how for giving birth to a son, this is how many days they're talking about had transpired. So it's giving you the key to um, unlock more information than is explicitly, uh, you know, pinned down there, and it's it's written you know, in shorthand uh, in in the gospel. So here's your tie-in. Chapters 13 and 14 are kind of rough to read. They deal with diseases and leprosies. Um, and, and I think that term leprosy is, is a, probably a broader category than we would just consider, um, you know, as our, as our modern term for, for leprosy as a one specific disease. But there, there's a method for identification for these various diseases and issues and the steps for identifying it and then also the response for how do you um, handle that so if it comes up and and it's really interesting because you know god is giving clear um an advantage to israel as far as on their the health of the nation that this is you know medical you know insight that you know that man man wouldn't come up on you know on their own or re rediscover um for for a long time I mean, in the Civil War, I mean, doctors weren't washing their hands because, you know, germs were just, they weren't a thing yet. And yet God's given these, these practical um, insight into how to identify disease and how to respond to them. And a lot of the responses were quarantining to keeping them out of the camp or to shut them up for a period of time and see what happened. And so that's, 
it's an interesting study, but it is kind of gross to read because you're talking about uh, looking at the discoloration and the rise into the flesh and wow. And so uh, don't don't read that one right before you have lunch <laughs> or if you got a lunch afterwards. Um, and then chapter 15 continues that theme of just various medical condition medical conditions and then the steps that they've got for, for being cleansed from them. Once you get to chapter 16, we're shifting into more, uh, just, and I've got it just as various, because you're covering a whole lot of things, various instructions to the priests, and then just a sundry of laws. So 16 uh, deals with the annual entering into the most holy place by the high priest. That's to be done uh, during the seventh month, once, once a year. Um, and that's when the priest had, you know, would go behind that veil um, that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And in the most holy place, you had the, the Ark of the Covenant. And he had to go in there just once a year, and he had to have the blood. And I think we talked about that last time, so I won't, won't go too much farther. But just a little bit more information about that. In 16 and then 17, uh, you know, instructions that sacrifices had to be brought to the priests um, and that eating again, the blood is forbidden. And the sacrifices being brought to the, the priests, um, that there becomes a problem later in Israel and Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, not in Jerusalem, but Judah, when the nation has uh, split down in time, they would institute the practice of just having altars wherever they wanted to. You have a tall mountain, a high hill, the high places is what they refer to them as what they would go sacrifice. And, and that is not the, the instructions that, that God was given, that they were to go to this one place where the tabernacle was, which tabernacle was immobile at first and up until uh, Solomon built the temple, temple which is when uh, the ark was moved inside there and it became a fixed point in Jerusalem. But before then, it, it, it bounced around a little bit. All right, chapter 18, you get into some more laws on unlawful marriages. A lot of these are your most common examples of incest. Don't marry your sister, your aunt, your stepmother. I mean, you name it. Um, that those are the, the relationships that are unlawful. Uh, and then this is where you get into uh, lust and uh, various scenarios that you know, are uh, ignored in our culture about what is what is appropriate and is not appropriate. Um, same thing down there in chapter 20 um, when you're talking about uh, sodomy and bestiality and you know, all those various things that this is where those laws have been listed out. Um, that they were they were unlawful. Um, chapter 19 is just a sundry of laws. I couldn't think of a way to sum it up any better than that. Just just various laws, but one of them I thought was interesting was that self mutilation was forbidden. Uh, chapter 20, you know, you're not allowed to have children or human sacrifices. Israel gets in trouble later than that because that's what the the tribes in Canaan did um, before they drive them out is that they would sacrifice their children. Um, and so they were prohibited from doing that, prohibited from witchcraft, um, adultery, and again, sodomy is forbidden. And sodomy refers to the conduct that was engaged upon in the, in the city of Sodom, which is a reference back to where Lot came from when the two angels came uh, in Genesis. And so you can go, go read that again. Additional qualifications, chapter 21, additional qualifications and then restrictions uh, on the priest. So not anybody can be a priest. You had to be a, a son of Aaron. Um, and when you were a priest, you could not engage in some of the behaviors that the other children of Israel engaged in. So one was the period of mourning 
um, you were, you couldn't do a file yourself um, except for a very, very, very close family member. You couldn't touch a dead body. Um, you had been set apart. And so you were limited in how you could mourn. You were limited in who you could marry. You couldn't marry someone who'd already been married once. You couldn't marry a harlot or uh, any of those things. You had um, particular limitations on who you could marry. And then if you had physical blemishes, it could bar you from service. So if you were a hunchback or uh, club-footed, or I mean, it just gives a whole list of, of things that that precluded you from serving in that role of priest. And that, that goes into the image of you, those those with physical blemishes is uh, sacrifices also weren't acceptable. Um, and then chapter 22, if you were unclean for any reason, you, you know, accidentally touched a body or something, there's a period where you're, you're considered unclean. You, you were prohibited from entering the temple at all. And not only that, you couldn't eat at the priest's uh, portion uh, until you're, you were, uh, had gone through the, the cleansing process. All right. Chapter 23. I hope y'all are still hanging with me. Uh, get to our annual feasts. Um, we've got the, the feast of the Passover, which is, and I just laid out, wh when do these occur? So your year starts um, with the Passover, first month, the 14th day through the 21st day, seven seven day process. And then five weeks after the Passover is when you have Pentecost. Um, or the Feast of Weeks, so it's about 50 days after the Passover. Um, so I think that's the Penta that's being referred to. Um, so seven weeks after the Passover, and that's when you're offering your first fruits, the first fruits of the year, just not your full harvest time, but the first little green things that have been uh, growing up, that's when you're offering those. Uh, and then later in the seventh month is the Feast of Trumpets, uh, which is on the first day. And then on the 10th day of that same month is the Day of Atonement. That's the day when the high priest goes into the veil and, um, and with blood the once a year. And then on the 15th day of the month is the Feast of Tabernacles. So all that's going on in the 7th. So the 7th is a busy month. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, you will see in other portions of the Bible referred to as the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Booth. All those are referring to the same feast, and, it, and booth is just another name for tent. And what they were literally supposed to do is they were supposed to go camping. That for a week, they were supposed to build tents, and they were supposed to sleep outside in them, uh, among other things. And it was to remind them of how the Lord caused them to dwell in tents when he brought them out of Israel. Now, Israel at this point, when they're just receiving this law, doesn't know that they've got 38 more years of camping to go. Because when they go to Canaan and they're scared and they don't go in, you know, God um, punishes them by saying that whole generation who was able to go into war is going to get wiped out and they're going to die off and their kids are going to go into the land. And so, you know, you're, you're less than two years into their camping trip right now in the wilderness, but they are going to have a long time in which they are living, you know, a nomad's life, living in tents. And so, their generations following are supposed to every year take a week out of their, their lives to remember how God caused them to dwell in tents. When you go to chapter 24, you get instructions for uh, the oil uh, for the lamps. So remember, this is inside a tent. It's dark in there. You were given instructions in Exodus to build a particular kind of lamp, and that's what you know we get from the You've seen a Jewish menorah um, from Hanukkah. It's similar to that. Uh, it's not exactly the same. There's either an extra or one less um, of the little candlesticks. Um, this is the oil that you put in there to keep that thing burning. Um, 
and then also the shoe bread, which could be, which is just pronounced show bread. It's the bread that is on display. So there's 12 loaves, one for each loaf of the, one for each tribe, 12 tribes that sits out. And then at the end of this, you get a little bit more narrative where you have uh, a man who is blaspheming against the name of God, the name of the Lord, and they don't know what to do with him. This has never happened before. Um, and so they put him in jail or ward basically until they go to Moses and say, what are we supposed to do with this guy? And that's when you know, he goes to talk to God. Moses tells Moses, Moses, God tells Moses that he is to be stoned. That's the punishment. And so, so that first stoning is, is carried out for his for blaspheming in the name of the Lord. Chapter 25 gets into two concepts. Uh, one is the Sabbath year and the other is the year of Jubilee. So the Sabbath year is interesting. Um, living down here in South Georgia, I've learned a little bit about crop rotation because your soil wears out. Well, the Lord provided a way for their land to have rest, um, you know, so its nutrients wouldn't be over farmed. Um, but every seventh year, so from the year they came in, year seven uh, into the land was supposed to be a year where they didn't sow any crops and they didn't harvest any crops. Uh, and we also learn later in Deuteronomy chapter 15 that not only that, but anyone who had been leased themselves or signed themselves over to you as a servant who was a Hebrew or an Israelite, on the seventh year, you had to release them. That was, that was as far as it could go, and all debts to Israelites had to be forgiven. So their indentured servitude or servanthood couldn't last more than seven years for Israelites. Now you get the, the year of the Jubilee is uh, every 50 years really it's every seventh sabbath year so you got seven periods of seven 49 years well that ends and you start year 50. year 50 is called the year of release and that's the year when trumpets will blow and all the servants uh, regardless of whether they're israelites or, or anybody they're all made free um and not only that uh, any land that you have purchased from an Israelite went back to the guy you purchased it from. You say, well, that doesn't make much sense. Well, purchasing land in those days uh, under the structure that God put out is really more like a long-term lease. They didn't have the ability to sell their inheritance. Um, and you think about this, it, it makes sense that when they go into the land, the the land is going to be divided based on tribe and each family based on the size of the family is going to get a certain amount of land. Well, if the generations could buy and sell their land, then eventually one tribe is going to have more land and the others are going to get smaller. It's going to be all this shuffling of land back and forth so that it won't remain how it's set up. In this, this model, they don't have the ability to do that. It's got to stay within the tribe, uh, within the family that it goes to. So as, as a, a father, if I'm a very bad manager of money, I won't mess up the inheritance of my kids and grandkids. They'll still have the same land um, because I can only sell it for up to a 50-year lease, basically. And then the land goes back to our family at the, at the end of that year of Jubilee. So as a lawyer, I thought this was very interesting. Y'all may not find it interesting at all, but that's, that's what's going on. Uh, chapter 27, uh, you've got a bunch of laws regarding idolatry. The general theme is don't. don't. Don't serve or worship anything other than the Lord your God. And that gets the Israelites into a whole lot of trouble once they come into the land um, because they start doing 
exactly like the people who were there before them were doing and worshiping you know rocks and stones and trees and um making things with their own hands and saying that these are our gods i mean and this is the same thing they did just they just barely got into mount sinai and they're already making a golden calf or cow um to go before them as their god and then chapter 27 you're introduced to some laws and rules about uh if you're to make an oath or vows uh if you do say them you know can that be annulled or go away and the general answer is no um that if you um have made a vow you're you're stuck to your word um the only exce- exception or if uh there is a, a a woman who's still in her father's household or she's married um the the husband or the father had like an executive veto that if, if as soon as he heard about the vow uh he could say no that, that that's not going to stand but if he kept his mouth shut and allowed it to continue then it would it would stand and he no longer have the ability to to nullify it and then there's also this concept of devoting items to god and I didn't put the reference on here, but if you're reading in the New Testament about how Jesus is getting on to the scribes and Pharisees about not honoring their father and their mother, um, that they had a tradition uh, where they would tell their father and mother, rather than me providing for you in your old age, um, anything that you could be profited of by me, anything that I should give you, I'm going to give that to God. They, they use the term korban, which means a gift. Uh, so I don't have to do anything for you. Um, but I'm also not in trouble. And this is what Jesus is calling them out about, about their taking their tradition and making the, the commandments of God of none effect. And so they're complying with the letter of their law of tradition of, well, I don't have to honor my father and mother and provide for them because I've devoted it, the, the, what I would have given them to God. Well, Jesus is saying, no, that, that, that doesn't work. You, you still have to honor your father and mother. You can't weasel your way uh, out of it. But that's what they're referring to as far as the core band, the devoting items to God. So they're in chapter 27. All right. So your most interesting question. And I know we've been going for about 38 minutes. And so you're probably just eyes glazing over. But these, this is this is what uh, keeps me engaged on particularly these, these difficult Old Testament um, texts that have got a lot of instructions and things that, you know, don't don't directly apply to us or relate to us. Um, but they're still useful information. And, and just as Jesus, when he's talking on the road to Emmaus, to his two disciples, where he started with Moses and the law and went all the way through the prophets, explaining how all those things pointed to him. And I would have loved to have been on the road to hear that. You know, it's my job to to look at the Old Testament and see how is God writing this to point to the coming of Christ and his, and what role did he have and how did he fill that? And so one of the things that stands out to me in Leviticus is that there are parallels between every single sacrifice and Jesus. Okay. So take example, you know, the peace offering. Well, Jesus was our peace offering. And, and if you look at Ephesians uh, 2, 14 through 17, you know, it describes Jesus as being our peace for he is our peace who hath made both one, hath made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man and so making peace that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So there used to be enmity between God and man, us and man, uh, us Gentiles and the the Jewish natural, natural tribe of uh, nation of Israel. So I can't talk. 
So that's what's referring to there is breaking down the middle wall partition. There was a separation between Israel and Gentiles. Well, Jesus broke that down. There's now one family of God and the partition that was between us and God, the enmity, which is a strong word, which means hatred, the hatred between us and God. Uh, he's reconciled that by his body being. And so he's made our peace. So he's a, he's the peace offering. He offered himself and thereby made peace. He's also our Passover lamb. Um, so First Peter 1.19 says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversations received by traditions from your father, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spots. It's referring to the qualifications that a lamb had to have when you could offer it as a Passover lamb. It had to be without blemish. You couldn't use your three-legged, you know, cockamamie-eyed, you know, ugly lamb to do this. It had to be perfect, and Christ was that. Um, he was offered without spot, and it was by his blood that we were redeemed. Um, he was also our sin offering. Um, uh, this is First Peter 2 and 24. It says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, and by whose stripes we were healed. So he became became our sin offering. Uh, he's also the scapegoat when he carried away our sins. The scapegoat was the one uh, I don't think we talked about today, but they would um, you know, confess the, the sins of the nation over by putting their head, hand over his head, and then someone, a strong man would lead him way far out into the wilderness to, to, in a sense, give a type to those sins being taken away. Well, that's what Christ did. And then Psalms 103, 12 says, as far as the east is from the west is how far, is so far he hath removed our transgressions from us. So he, he, he carried them farther than we can even wrap our head around um, as far as the directions of east and west are. We've also got the, the meat and drink offering. Uh, remember meat being meal or bread. Uh, he, he was our bread and drink offering uh, because he was, he was the bread of life. And if you look at the Last Supper, he talked about taking bread and the wine. Jesus took bread and blessed it, break it, and gave to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He uh, took the cup and gave thanks and said unto them, drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. So in his physical uh, reference to his body and to the blood that he was shedding, it was the, the blood that was going to be poured out um, as a drink offering in his body that was going to be broken as a meat offering. And then finally, the free will offering or voluntary offering. No one forced Christ to do this. No, no, no man took his life. Um, it was voluntary. And John 10, 17 through 18 says, Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. And I'm, I'm sure there are other things in Leviticus that point to Christ. I just wanted to give you uh, a few examples. Um, let me 